You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. All right, welcome into the Hoist the Colors podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Igo. I'm joined by Kaysen Romaley. It is another week on the ECU basketball offseason podcast. If you have not joined us the last number of weeks, we're running through the roster, given kind of expectations, what to expect for two players each week. We're also looking at two opponents each week uh, we've been doing this about a month now it's been a lot of fun we've got a lot of great feedback again and, and you know we've got news and notes that is that, that are starting to trickle out as we get closer to the season still a long way away as we sit here in late july but we are getting closer Kaysen. and let's start with the big scheduling news from this past week the florida gators will be on the uh, ecu men's basketball schedule this this season they went around 500 last year with the first-year coach, Todd Golden, but they are projected to be really good this coming season based on what they have returning, their transfer class. So, um, you know, we've talked about briefly the non-conference schedule, case and not looking the, the strongest, but this is a uh, this is a big game added to the, uh, to the marquee. 100%. It's always good when you see SEC teams on your schedule, and ECU right now has two locked in the schedule, which is a huge boost for their – non-conference schedule and i'm really looking forward to that game florida didn't have the best year in terms of their program last year but they're definitely due for a bounce back this year considering the additions they brought in so i'm looking forward to a nice competitive matchup and also this is a game ecu can win 100 percent because florida right now is not it's not at the top of their league you're not playing alabama you're not playing arkansas this is a beatable s this is a beatable sec team and the opportunities there for this team what do you make of the neutral site game in Lakeland, Florida, which is two hours south of Gainesville? Not really neutral friendly for ECU fans, um, but I, I guess the you know the bonus is it is not on Florida's home court, which is you know good and bad from a net perspective, uh, bad from a net perspective, but good from you probably have a better chance to win the game at a neutral site versus playing in you know whatever the basketball version of the swamp is, but. I just thought the location was interesting, but maybe that's the only place they could, you know, come to an agreement. Yeah, I thought the location was a little interesting too. When I went and when I went and look, when I went and looked at it, I was completely sure where uh, where it was. I went on a map, looked, and I was like, oh, okay. So I'm not, I'm not too bent out of shape about that. But I think games like this are going to be big for this program. Those neutral site games that feel like tournament games, where Swartz can kind of replicate the 
process of the travel and the get ready, the hotel, that kind of process is going to be huge for this team. So I think it is a good stepping stone. And you and Florida is likely to be a tournament team. So this will be a good test and kind of this is what it will be like for this team. So we know now ECU will be hosting South Carolina after beating them in Greenville, South Carolina last year. They'll be going to Florida. They'll be going to George Mason. They'll be hosting UNCW. Those are kind of the marquee non-conference games to this point, and we've seen a lot of reports of kind of some other filler games. I believe uh, Campbell, Maryland Eastern Shore, a couple other non-name you know, opponents at home. So uh, I think there's one or two games left to be announced. And so we'll get more into the non-conference schedule once it's officially announced, typically sometime in August, and they release the league schedule typically in September. So uh, we do have the league opponents, and that was other news that came out that I wanted to hit on, Kaysen. Um, And we'll get more into, again, we're breaking down all the league teams. Once we have the dates and how it lines up, we'll, we'll dive more into this. But any initial thoughts on you know the opponent pairings to where ECU you know, basically will only play five teams home and away and then five on the road, and then five at home solo. So interesting setup this year with with uh, so many American teams. Yeah, I, well, the first thing that pops out to me is going to Texas four four times is wow that that is a whole lot of travel. And I was hoping to see FAU in uh, Minji's, but it's all right. But I'm glad we get I'm glad we get Memphis, and I think that North Texas twice is we didn't get the best draw on that. So, I mean, that's basically all I have, just a lot of travel to Texas. A lot of travel to Texas, including for the uh, American Athletic Conference basketball tournament as well, and the American Athletic Conference media days for football. So uh, they they are headquartered in Texas now, I guess, because there's so many teams in Texas. So it is what it is, man. Kind of lame, but, you know, with so many teams in Texas in the league, I understand it as well. yeah, disappointed about FAU, excited Memphis, and Tulane will be coming to Minji's. And, you know, with the, with really the rest of the schedule, I, I feel like it's, you know, you would like to have two games against Memphis and two games against FAU from a net perspective. But in terms of a winning schedule, getting a winning record in conference play, I think it's a very manageable slate. And we'll look at how it lines up when the time comes. All right, by the way, we are live on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. Drop any comments you have for us. If you're listening live, you're listening to our podcast version. Thanks uh, for, for tuning in that way as well. Uh, again, drop any comments you have. We'll get to them throughout the show. Let's transition now into our player preview. And the title of the show is, uh, are we about to see Quentin DeBunje have a breakthrough season? I've got mixed feelings on this. I'm very high on Quentin DeBunje's talent level. And for me, it all comes down to consistency, ma- uh, maturity, focus. He's now entering his third year of college basketball. Kaysen, we'll get into the the the, the file here in a minute. His second year at ECU, his third year with Coach Schwartz because he transferred over from Tennessee. He was a four-star prospect, uh, native of France. So, again, life, we talked about it with Benjamin Baela. You don't just show up to the United States as a foreigner and, and just fit in right away. And I think – Last year at times, you know, there was a transition for him going from Tennessee to ECU. Maybe second year at ECU, he's a lot more comfortable. But the guy's got a pretty stroke. He can jump out of the gym. He's physical. You know, he's built well. For me, it's just all about consistency and mindset with Quentin. What what, what was your take on Quentin last year? Because he kind of quietly had a, a pretty solid season statistically, Kaysen, although maybe we don't remember it that way. 
So coming in, I remember when he committed here, I was like, wow, he has he has the tools. And even if you just look at him, he passes the eye test. He's a phenomenal athlete. It's out there. But I know that there were some times when you would watch him play, you would be like, oh, he's on the floor. You would forget he's on the floor. And I just think that sometimes he would get he would get lost out there. He wasn't looking for a shot sometimes. And everyone remembers the memorable run under the basket. And <laughs> that is one of my favorite moments of all time. And we're not picking on him. It was just, you know, it was just very memorable yeah. from the standpoint of it was pretty hilarious. Yeah. And I mean, just the tools, the tools and the opportunity are there for him 100%. And I think, and I think, and I think that he has opportunity to take over and, the biggest question with this team is that three spot is who's going to step up in that three spot point guard, shooting guard taken up and then power forward and center are taken. So it's that three spot that is open for anyone, in my opinion. And I think that Quentin is set up perfect to step up and, and hopefully average 10 points a game and be a force. Yeah. Last year, again, his first year at East Carolina, he, uh, he was a part-time starter. He started 19 games you know, played in 30 games total, average around 20 minutes per game. He finished the year 7.1 points per game, uh, only 1.6 rebounds per game. They need him to rebound the ball better. One assist per game. He had 29 assists to 27 turnovers. He blocked four shots. He had eight steals. He shot 32%, 32 32.7% from three-point range. 36% 36% from the field and 74% from the free throw line. And, um, you know, I just remember similar to Baila in some respects, although not quite as inconsistent, like there were games where his three-point stroke looked uh, outstanding. I mean, it's a good-looking shot, and it's like when he shot it with confidence and he would hit one early, he would have a pretty good game. Um, and so, you know, the, the one thing that he would get in trouble with is when he would drive, he goes in so physical, he got called for at least a handful of charges, if not more. And, um, you know, he just got to play a little more discipline and, and maybe just get more comfortable. And, and the other thing, too, was defensively, you remember Schwartz really challenged him early in the year and rebounding. So, again, there's a lot of areas he can improve, but uh, I think the baseline is there, looking at last year, Case, and that he, he can be pretty productive if he's on the floor. Yeah, that's a huge part of him next year because similar to uh Baila, there were points this year where he would get subbed in and then he would maybe mess up defensively and he was immediately back out and then you could see the visible frustration by him and the staff just because of that and but also that just comes with being the first year in a program it's not just him happens all around the country but just like you said with his rhythm and consistency is how if in a game when he would make his first three or first shot, his his next shot going up, I felt very confident. Oh yeah, he's he's knocking this down. And also, just like you said about his drives, it just goes to show with his athleticism and power. When he drives the basket, he's driving he's driving with some intent. And there were a couple of times in Minji's where he would throw down some tomahawk dunks, and it's like, where's this been? And it's definitely there, one hundred percent. He just got to go get it. He also missed more dunks than anybody I can remember. Um, you remember, like, he would go in for a finish and try to throw it down, and it would clank off the iron. So, like, he's got to figure out – I mean, no lie, he probably cost himself 16 points last year on mixed, miss, missed dunks. I mean, so he's got to figure that out. 
you know, it's great you're athletic and, and can dunk it, but if you're going to do it, man, you got to make sure you finish at the rim. Um, this team isn't isn't dominant enough to be missing dunks left and right. So they, they got to figure that out. Um, Three-point shooting, there were one, two, three, four, as I count them here, five, six, seven, eight, nine games last year. He hit multiple three-pointers, including a handful where he hit three or more. So, again, it's there. Three-point shooting kind of fell off the second half of the year. A lot of that probably confidence and consistency. I mean, his his minutes were so all over the place. You know, starting in uh, in December, he went from being a full-time starter and then in December played six minutes, nine minutes, seven minutes, 15 minutes, three minutes, 10 minutes against Memphis. And then starting at Cincinnati, he played 34 in early January, 35, 23, 23, 24. Then it went back to five in February against South Florida. Then you play 25, 31, 26, 16, 29, 26, 35, 22, three minutes against South Florida in the conference tournament and 28 minutes against Houston. So just a wide range of uh, of minutes there, and that comes with inconsistency. And, and two, Mike Schwartz said last year, you got to be able to play defense. You got to be able to be trustworthy on the, on the floor. So um, as we look at Quentin this year, you know, it's, it's really a matter of I think we both kind of are leaning towards the fact Cam Hayes likely won't get his waiver approved at this point. If he does, you know, this conversation changes. But let's just assume that Cam Hayes does not get his waiver approved and has to sit out this year. The three spot at that point comes down to Quentin, Benjamin Baila, who we've already looked at, and Jaden Walker, who we have yet to preview, but, you know, can play basically anywhere on the floor. And I think Quentin's got the highest upside of those three, specifically from an athletic standpoint and a shooting standpoint. And I think he will get his chances to to grow into that role, Kaysen. And for me, if this team wants to maximize his potential, Quentin has to fulfill his potential, if that makes sense. Just what are your thoughts on what his ceiling looks like if it all comes together? I think if this team wants to be a fringe tournament team or a NIT team or postseason team, Quentin needs to score around 10 points a game consistently. And we're going to need a couple nights where he will go off and score and score 18 a night. But also Quentin, I think Quentin, I think knows that or needs to know that he doesn't need to go score 25 a game for this team, for this team to be successful. I mean, it'd be great, but I mean, he just needs to just go out there, relax, be him and be confident. And when you were looking at last year's minutes, and I think that around those times when his minutes went down, that was the point where Schwartz was trying to find the identity of his team. He was and he was trying different things, which happens with the first year head coach, first year in a program is going to happen. So that is so yes, that was a learning moment for Quinn. And I think it did hurt him at times. But I also think it also helped him at times though, too, because he said, Oh, I need to prove myself more. And that did help improve his season the back end. But just like you were saying was he's going to have the opportunities and the three spots open. And I think if he can score 10 points a game, it's going to be huge for this team. If you want defensive rebounding at the three, you're going to go with Jaden Walker or Baela. You know, Jaden averaged almost five boards a game last year. And that was with a lot playing point guard again. Quentin only averaged 1.6 rebounds per game. So he's got to rebound the ball better. You know, Baela is a solid rebounder. Probably not the all-around threat of Walker and uh, DeBunjay. You know, so you have different skill sets there. But I think 
Quentin's going to offer you the most offense. Now, his three-point shooting percentage ended up being basically what Walker's was last year on more shot attempts. So more consistent uh, shooting uh, approach maybe leads to to more consistent shooting results for Quentin because I feel like there were times he was uh, he was pretty aggressive from three three-point range, and hopefully he can get a little more consistent. But again, second year in a program, third year in college basketball, I expect him to to hopefully make that jump and I think we'll have every every opportunity too. We talked about Coach Schwartz player development, so crucial. Quentin is a guy I'll be watching closely this year, along with Baela as well, the two uh two France guys. All right. Let's make our stat prediction for Quentin Dabunje. I'll let you go first. Um I've really wrestled with this one because I, I I picked ba- Baela to make a pretty big jump. I don't know if I could go with both of them making a big jump or else I'm going to have ECU averaging like 95 points a game. Um, your thoughts on Quentin's projected stat line? I'm going to put him right at eight and a half points a game, three rebounds, one assist. And I definitely think the field goal percentage is going to go up. Moore's field goal percentage right at 40%, three point right around 38. So there's going to be some improvement from him. Yeah, that would be a good jump. I mean, I think he's got to at least get to the mid-30s, three-point, and I think he's certainly capable. Um, honestly, I'm probably going around what you're picking. I think he goes to to eight, eight and a half to nine points per game. I don't have him quite at 10, but I think he'll be more consistent than last year. I think his rebounds will go up to around three or four a game, and I think he'll average around probably an assist per game, kind of like last year as well. Um so I think we're on a similar wavelength there. And I tell you what, though, it wouldn't shock me if Quentin ends up averaging 12, 13 points a game if he if it all comes together. Uh, I think the potential is there. It's just a matter of, you know, what ends up happening with this lineup. How does this thing kind of unfold as the season goes on? All right, so there's your Quentin DeBunje talk. We'll, we'll talk about our second scholarship player of the show now, and that is freshman Callum Richard. He is a 6'10", 237-pounder from Gaston Day High School, signed in the spring period. And essentially how this one went is they tried to get a transfer big. And the good ones, too much NIL money and too much uh, – basically they were just getting too highly recruited. So they, they had been on Callum a while. Former East Tennessee State head coach had been on Tennessee staff with Schwartz. So they they had a very trustworthy opinion of what Callum Richard was because he was a former East Tennessee State commitment until that coach was let go, uh, and essentially, EC was like, "All right, well, why you know why take a mid tier transfer who may not even be that good and and have to pay him money, but we can go get a, a really talented freshman with high upside." So they elected to go that route. They signed Callum Richard. They pair him with Sierra Malanga, a, a fellow freshman who we've talked about, kind of more of a defensive first big man. Callum's going to be more offensive, has a really good back-to-the-basket game, can score with either hand. You know, pretty athletic, not as athletic as Sear, but uh, interesting combo here with with Callum and Sear. You don't see too many, you know, two 6'10 freshman bigs in college basketball these days. And it's also rare they come in together, too. That's also pretty rare in college basketball. And I'm just looking to see what his minutes are this year. Um, it's pretty unclear right now what his expectation for this team is going to be because of how early it is. And also, he has basically a – basically, ECU got a set of twins 
coming in basically and you don't know and I don't know their game specifically so I don't know what situations they will be put put into specifically but I definitely think there will be some uh moments this year where one of them is going to get plugged in whether it's Callum or CR or uh, Sire so I'm really unsure yeah I mean that's the thing I think you know, we we talked about it with Sear, but it's like your best lineup at this point, your most proven lineup is with Brandon or Ezra at the five and kind of playing smaller. But if you need to, like when we talked about Wichita State, you're going to have to play some size and Callum and Sear kind of offer that. So it's just what do you want? You know, do you want a true big to go in there and score back to the basket? I don't think Callum's going to be out there shooting from the perimeter. I don't think Sear is going to be doing that as well. So a lot of it comes down to matchups, what you want. And uh, I do think just talking to people, he's a lot more, you know, usually you see these big, big freshmen, big guys, and, and they can't really score. They, they, you know, they can't really finish in the paint. They don't really have much of a offensive game. It's more, hey, rebound, defense, maybe block a few shots, kind of like Sierra. I do feel like Callum will be able to score the ball. So maybe early in non-conference play, you kind of experiment with this stuff and, you know, you throw them in there, see – all right, if he can score versus these guys, maybe that gives him confidence going into league play. You know, one thing I do know is having covered this team a long time, these young bigs will look pretty good in non-conference play, but once they get to a grown man's league like the American, that's when the real challenge comes. So just a lot of unknowns here, Kaysen. But um, I guess if you're trying to develop a big guy and you don't – really, let's be honest, you don't have the money to go out and buy one. I mean, that's what college basketball is now with the transfer portal. You take two, the odds of one of them turning out to be pretty good are probably uh, a lot better than just taking one. So I, I I don't hate the approach. I know some people have questioned why go get two big guys as freshmen. You're not going to play all 13 scholarship guys. You're not going to play all e- even 12 if, if Hayes is ineligible. So uh, I don't hate the approach like some people have questioned it. And I also think with them practicing with Ezra and BJ, Every single day in practice, that's going to be huge for them, huge in their development because they're practicing against two of the best bigs in the conference every single day, and that's going to just boost their development. That's going to be huge for them, and I could definitely see these these two are definitely project players. They're definitely players. They're going to develop. They're not going to be – I hope they're instant success, but chances are they're probably not. But, but yeah, I me personally, I have, I, I have no problem with this because you're not – you're not losing nothing. Just just like you said, you're not going to gamble on a mid-tier transfer portal player and him be a bust when you can polish polish your own prospect, just like you said. Yeah, and of course, if they end up being good, the key will be keeping them here. But I do know, you know, I talked to Callum, have not talked to Sear, but I do know Callum very thankful for Coach Schwartz, their belief in him. So you just have to hope loyalty goes a, a long way if these guys end up being players and, you know, we'll see what happens in time. All right. You know, we always project the stat line and we'll do it here with Callum. Um, but I, I think realistically, you know, this is just kind of throwing darts, uh, seeing where they land. Similar to Sear, like probably one, two points a game, a couple rebounds a game. I, I don't think there's any nonsense to dive more into the numbers because we just don't know at this point what, what these guys are or how they're really going to be utilized. Yeah, it's really hard to look at the numbers. I mean, the only number that I'm concerned about right now his freshman year are his minutes. I'm just looking to see how many minutes he plays. I mean, he's for sure going to play in the non-conference. It just matters of how much is he going to be playing in December. 
Yeah, yeah, no, fair point. Well, there's your look at Callum Richard, and there's your look at also Quentin DeBunje. So I'm trying to run through the roster here. We have now done Bobby Pettiford, Caleb Account, Ezra Asar, RJ Felton, Quentin DeBunje, Benjamin Baila, to Corey Faison, G- uh, Brandon Johnson, and Sear Malanga. So we have done eight, or have we done ten? I can't even count, apparently. I'm pretty sure it's ten. Ten. Ten sounds right. Yeah. So we've got uh we've got scholarship guys left. We've got Valentino, Valentino Pinedo, Cam Hayes, and Jaden Walker. So next week we'll go Jaden Walker and Valentino, and we'll save Cam Hayes for uh, later on, basically if we know he's eligible or not. The good thing with Cam is he's got a redshirt year available, so if if we need to, uh, you know, if ECU needs to redshirt him, they can. And uh, I think, you know, he could grow from a, a year sitting out. So we've already gone through 10 scholarship players now up to 13, and maybe we can look at some of the walk-ons as well. All right, let's transition now to our AAC team previews as we move to teams 9 and 10 in the American we've looked at, and today is North Texas and Temple. Two interesting teams. North Texas coming off a a really good year. Temple has a new coach. We'll we'll preview North Texas first. Kaysen, as always, does tremendous research on this. He sends over these little note packets uh, with uh, breakdowns of their season their roster, who left, who's coming back, kind of their style of play. And North Texas last year, NIT champions, and, you know, one of the last teams playing college basketball, 31 wins. But their head coach, Grant McCaslin, does leave to take the Texas Tech job. Um, Of course, where Mark Adams was uh, let go slash resign, he's now on ECU staff. So interesting note there. But just your initial thoughts on North Texas, this program, what they bring to the table. This this has been a really good basketball program the past couple of years. Uh, Grant McCaslin has been one of the top head coaches, and I'm shocked he was at North Texas for as long as he was. He left there with a record of 135 and 65, which is ridiculous. The 71 and 35 conference record. Didn't have one losing season there. Um, in 2018, North Texas was the CBI champs. And in 2021, they made an NCAA tournament appearance where they beat Purdue. Pretty memorable game. And then this past year, they played the NIT and won it by beating UAB for the fourth time in the NIT championship, which is kind of, which is pretty crazy. And on the run of the NIT included wins versus Wisconsin and Oklahoma State. Two pretty good wins. But then uh, Grant, Coach Coach Grant left, and they actually hired in-house Ross Hodge, who spent the last six years as the associate head coach under under him. And, I mean, there's a lot of buzz around this program right now because everyone around that program loved Hodge as well. And, I mean, the main kicker is they lost their head coach and their best player, Tyler Perry, who transferred to Kansas State. And there's still just major buzz around this program, and that just shows the strength of this program and also the support staff around it and the buzz around it. The the whole in-house hire thing always, you know, it's it's very hit or miss for me. It comes down to um, 
you know, the administration has to basically has to trust that the program is, you know, it's the easy thing to do. Uh, you've had a successful program. All right, let's just hire the associate head coach. You know, similar to like if Cliff Godwin ever, ever left ECU baseball, I would be very comfortable with them hiring Jeff Palumbo because I'm, I'm around the program. I know how much Palumbo means to it, whatever. So like from the outside looking in, you kind of look at it as, all right, they just hire the associate coach. I'm sure they feel really good about him, but it, it just feels like it's so hit or miss at times. Um, and we'll see, we'll see how they do. They, they're losing a ton of, of pieces. They are uh, bringing some back though. And they, they added some key guys, but you just always wonder, you know, it does provide stability in a day and age where you need it, but would they have been better off going out and hiring somebody else? You know, time will tell, but just, you know, always interested to see how those things play out. Uh, their, their best player, you mentioned Tyler Perry going to Kansas state. They also lost uh, Kai Huntsbury to graduation. He averaged 12 a game. They, they lost Abu Osman to Xavier. He averaged 11 a game. And they lost uh, four other guys, it looks like, as well, who were somewhat contributors. So uh, take us through the newcomers, handful of guys coming in, just like every program in America, it seems like. Yeah. Uh, they return only one starter, Aaron Scott, who's their point guard, averaged seven points a game. And from what I've seen and heard, they're expecting him to have a major jump, to have a Tyler Perry-type year, which is huge for them. And then coming in, they got Robert Allen from Ole Miss, averaged four points a game. C.J. Nolan, 3.2 points a game. And then um, they got John Bugs third from UTSA, former uh, – well, was in the same conference, now in the same conference again. And then they got Jason Edwards from JUCO, who is the national leader in scoring for them, for JUCO, from Dodge City with 22 points a game. And then they got uh, Rondell Walker from TCU, also from, I think, Oklahoma State. He played 30 games for TCU last year. That's kind of like a role, kind of like a role player, only two points a game, but he was huge for TCU last year. I remember watching him, remember watching them play. He was huge at vital moments. Then they got freshman Alex Cotton, who's a little who's another combo guard. But I mean, when I when I look at this team and this coaching staff, the staff that Hodge put together. This team doesn't have a low floor, but I'm unsure on how high their ceiling is. I definitely think they're not going to be any slouch in the American. I definitely think they're going to be middle middle or above. But I definitely think that losing losing your head coach and your star player, and your star player was one of the best players in the country last year, clearly, because he's going to Kansas State to play for Jerome Tang, who's outstanding. I mean, it just when I was doing this yesterday, it just kind of blew my mind that there's still – buzz and excitement about this program despite losing your two major pieces of your program i'm very i'm looking forward to seeing this team team play i'm glad ecu plays them twice they'll be a good test and i'm glad they play them at home so i can get a good look at them too i was trying to look up basically what their attendance is like it looks like it's around four thousand per game i i don't have any again i'm not a north texas expert i know they play in the super pit uh, looks like they have around 4,000 games. I kind of scroll through the schedule, but like you would think a program that good in Texas draws pretty good, but I don't know. I guess there's also probably a lot of Texas and uh, A&M fans in the area as well. So, but you know, bringing in a Juco kid averaging 22 a game, looking at this Aaron Scott guy, six, seven, 200 pound wing. 
looks super athletic. It looks like he can make a jump. I think they'll definitely be towards the top of the conference or at least projected to be and just another really good addition uh, to to the team. And, again, we don't know what Ross Hodge will do differently uh, from M- M- uh, McCaslin. But, uh, you know, I think this is another good team. I mean, like every team we previewed coming into the league outside of UTSA I think is going to be good. And the other thing is every UTSA player that left UTSA is now on another team in the conference, it feels like. I mean, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. That's how it is, That's how it is nowadays. Just swing it, swing it, it swing sucks. it. They, uh, they're getting the reverse UCF effect where UCF used to take all the American transfers. UTSA now, uh, now feeling the effects of their transfers going to other teams in the Americans. So you think this is a top – Again, tough to tell on paper, but based probably a top half uh, team in the league, most likely. On paper, I think they're a top five team in the league on paper, but I'm curious to see how they pan out. But but that's with every team. These are just right. These are just July predictions. But if I had to, if I had to make predictions right now, I would say they're at, I would say they're at five, maybe looking at six. All right, let's move on to Temple, and the Owls are with a new head coach because Aaron McKee uh, was not very good. They gave him time, four years. I feel like four years is fair in, in this day and age. College hoops, I mean, we saw it, I believe, with Joe Dooley. He got four years. I mean, you could say the COVID thing isn't really fair, but th- the biggest thing with McKee is they always had talent, man. They had Damien Dunn, Khalid mm-hmm. Battle. Uh, they had uh, Jordan. They had the big guy inside. Like they always had dudes, and they just could never put any consistency together. So, if I'm Temple, I understand the move. Uh, he was able to recruit some players. They just never were consistent. I mean, you beat Houston on the road last year. You still end up having a mediocre year. Sixteen and sixteen led to his firing. Uh, did you feel like that was the? You know, did you feel like that was a fair move? I thought it was a fair move considering the talent he's had over the past couple of years. I mean. I, in my opinion, can I say this one with 100% confidence? This was the most underachieving team in the American last year. You have Khalif Battle and Damian Dunn and only won 16 games. I think that's kind of ridiculous. And I mean, they're both two phenomenal players. And I think, I think McKee was a good coach at times, but I don't think he was the right fit for this program. And also, kind of shocked he was there for four years because I mean, Temple basketball has a pretty good history. And I didn't think they were going to put up with what he did for four years, but they did. I, I think a lot of that had to do with the fact he was probably an alum and they were trying to give him as much time as possible to to turn it around. And I'll be honest, you know, when they made the new hire, I, I was pretty surprised. Um, and I know you're pretty high on Adam Fisher, and I've heard good things as well, but you know, I just expected them to get a bigger name as far as like more proven head coach. The guy has been the assistant at uh, Miami under Jim Laranega for years, and then also was the uh, assistant head coach at Penn State the last few years. You, you said he's a really good recruiter. Uh, his background shows that, but no head coaching experience again for Temple. And uh, I don't know, that kind of surprises me. Like I feel like they were going to get a bigger name, but we'll see how Fisher does. Yeah, I definitely think this wasn't the biggest fish in the pond, 100% in terms of a new hire. But I think Adam Fisher is a – to me, I think he's a good hire. Just like you said, he was at Miami. Miami for around seven seven years as an assistant and uh, director of operations. 
and then he was at Penn State. But but prior to that, he was at Villanova with Jay Wright as a GA for I think two years. So he's been around Jim Leonega and Jay Wright, which is huge. Two of the best coaches ever in college basketball. So that knowledge is just pouring over to him. And just like you said, he's a he's a great recruiter, one of the top crews in the country. Um, all of those good, all of those good Miami teams from 2015 to 2021. Fisher played a major part in recruiting all of them. I mean, the some of the players listed are like Lonnie Lonnie Walker, Bruce Brown, Chris Likes. Uh, I forgot to put Isaiah Wong on there. He's been an outstanding player for them the past couple of years. I mean, he knows how to find talent. And then during his time in Miami, they had 20 All Conference players, which is huge because it's in the ACC. And then when and then his first year at Penn State, he had the highest rated recruiting class in Penn State history and headlined by All-American Jalen Pickett, who had an outstanding year this past year, who's now in the NBA. And but also just but also just like you said, no, no head coaching experience. And first head coaching job is Temple at a in a pretty high conference, competitive conference. It is going to be a there's there's gonna be a learning curve 100 percent. I don't expect instant success from this team, but Fisher has proved that he can get guys to buy into him. And I definitely think that if he can get guys to buy into this program and him and his staff and at Temple, this program has a lot of upside, 100%. couple of things to note here. Uh, he is uh, a Pennsylvania native. He's a Penn State alum. So he is, uh, you know, he fits the, the area, obviously. Um, you know, knows uh, Pennsylvania and Philadelphia and obviously spent time with Penn State most recently. So he's going to know talent in the area. He's going to have connections there, and that should lead to a good recruiting job. He is 38 years old, which is one of the, you know, the probably the more younger head coaches in the league. Like Mike Schwartz, for instance, uh, he started his uh, coaching career a little earlier. He is 46 years old, got his first job at 45. Uh, as far as his uh, his first head coaching job in college basketball at ECU, so a little bit more experience. So just always interesting, not that age is everything, but uh, you, you hire a young coach, it can be very boomer bust. We'll see how things go with Adam Fisher at, uh, at Temple. Um, and, you know, again, major rebuild, basically. Kayla Faddle, who averaged 18 a game, moving on to Arkansas. Damien Dunn averaged 15 a game, moving on to Houston. I'll be honest, though. I got, you know, I don't know. Watching Temple, I felt like those two guys, obviously they were great players, but they almost shot too much. Like, there was no restraints on what they did. And I felt like if they had an off night, they lost because basically they were taking all the shots. But either way, Jamil Reynolds out the door. He averaged 10 a game to Cincinnati. Zach Hicks transferred to Penn State after averaging 10 a game. Nick Jordan averaged six a game, went to Memphis, another interconference transfer. And, uh, you know, a few other guys ended up leaving as well. But that's a lot of production to to make up for. I mean, that's basically four or five starting caliber players. Yeah, they have a lot of production leaving. And they, in my opinion, they don't have a lot coming in. Uh the only the major portal ad they got was Steve Settle from Howard, eleven points a game. When looking at this roster on paper, I'm unsure where the scoring is going to come from, but I definitely think that this is going to be a little bit of a bumpy year for them. But most first year head coaches' years are. But I'm just curious about this team. I'm unsure on paper what this team's identity is, and looking forward to see what that is coming up. 
Yeah, because under McKee, it was very defensive-oriented. They wanted a ton of length, and they just wanted to smother you, get to the free-throw line. You know, that's how Damien Dunn scored almost all his points on the free-throw line, and, and uh, battle was the same way. You know, I think Heiser Millers, who's coming back, averaging nine a game, I think he's got a chance to be a very good player, you know, up from that area, young guy going into another year. So, um Todd Thweet, it looks like, did not play sitting out through the transfer year, so he'll be eligible. You got a couple guys there returning, but uh, a lot of unknowns. And to be honest, I, if, if I were making picks today, and I don't know if I could ever say this, but I would pick ECU pretty comfortably ahead of Temple in my preseason projections right now just based off the experience, uh, the continuity. And I feel like Temple, just on, on paper, again, we're sitting here in July, mid uh, late July, I think Temple probably going to struggle this year, probably going to finish maybe towards the bottom of the league unless they get some surprise surprises from the roster. Yeah, I definitely see ECU better than this team. I can, Me personally, I think I can confidently say that. But then again, you never know in college basketball. But I think, in my opinion, Adam Fisher is a good hire. I'm looking forward to see what he does with this program for the next couple of years. Yep, first-year coach. We'll see how it plays out. All right, there's your look at Temple. There's your look at North Texas. Uh, we got a couple of comments from Chuck, who said, just tuned in. Props to the Pirates getting Florida on the schedule. Yeah, we talked about that earlier. Big uh, addition, second SEC team. ECU also hosts South Carolina. By the way, shout-out to the women who will be hosting South Carolina, one of the top teams in women's college basketball on December 30th. That'll be awesome. Uh, plan to make your way to Midgies for that matchup as Dawn Staley brings her squad in to face Kim McNeil's team. ECU bring back their entire starting lineup from last year's NCAA tournament team. South Carolina got another ridiculous recruiting class as usual. Chuck also says prediction Pirates will finish top five in the league this year. How you feel about that, Kazen? I feel, Too early to say? No. I, Me personally, I feel pretty good about that. When when looking through these teams and on paper, I like EC's chances facing the top five. We'll save our uh, predictions when the schedule comes out, but I, I do think this team's got a chance to be top half of the league uh, good. And, I, and it's the first time I've ever said that with, like, actual confidence. Like, usually I'm like, yeah, if everything goes right, they could finish in the top half of the league. But this year I feel like they're a top half of the league team. And it's just a matter of some things coming together, health being the most important. All right, so we have done FAU. We have done Memphis. We have done North Texas, Rice. We've done SMU, Temple, UTSA, Tulane, Tulsa, and Wichita. We have left UAB, Charlotte, South Florida, and that might be it, unless I'm leaving somebody out. Uh, because uh, maybe I'm leaving somebody else, but e either way, I think that's who we got left because we've done, I believe, everybody else. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think, too. I don't think we're missing anybody. So we'll we'll save Charlotte because they're they're kind of still in transition, and let's plan to go next week. UAB and South Florida. So USF has a first-year head coach as well. Um, and UAB, we know from Comp USA, they have one of the best uh, basketball programs 
um, in that league, and they're I think it'll be very good again. Again, lost North Texas last year in the NIT championship. So another good team coming in. We'll see what USF has in store as well with Brian Gregory finally, finally out the door. Where's Brian Gregory now? Do we know? Is he taking the year off? He might be in he might be in real estate now. I'm not really sure. I'm I'm gonna Google search his name real quick. This makes for great podcast radio. Um yeah, it just says most recently the head coach at South Florida. So it looks like he might be just chilling this year. I mean he I think he got a pretty good buyout, so he'll be all right. All right. Kaysen. By the way, ECU ended his time with uh that conference tournament champ or conference tournament win. Kaysen, we did it again, man. We made it through another uh, episode, and we're almost to the end of this series, and we got to come up with something else to talk about. 100%. I think by the time we end, we will have the schedule, hopefully, then we can start working on that. We can hope so. Next week starts football preseason camp, so my schedule may be a little all over the place. We might have to start moving some of these to the evening at times, but we'll figure it out. Uh, by the way, Macy O'Donnell, uh, we're going to, we're going to table our football preview for this week, which is going to be linebackers. He's got some stuff going on. I've got some stuff going on the next few days. We're going to table that. I think till Monday, we'll let you know when that's official, but we'll do our linebacker positional preview on Monday, but either way, case appreciate the time. Thanks. Uh, thanks to everybody for, for listening as well. We're going to get out of here. And we'll be back uh, sometime next week. We'll let you know when we go live, as always, on the Hoist of Colors message board. But appreciate it, Kaysen. Thanks, as always. And we will talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening to the Hoist the Colors podcast.